the eighth conference of the retreat, invites the parables of Jesus involving the actions of women to reveal God's ways to us. After starting with the parables of the woman leavening wheat with yeast and the woman searching for the lost coin, the conference invites us to allow the parables of the persistent widow demanding justice and the 10 virgins awaiting the bridegroom to challenge us. Finally, although not a parable per se, the story of Jesus' response toward the widow who gave all she had to live on to the temple is examined. Okay, so the topic this afternoon are the feminine, feminine images in the parables of Jesus. And um, parables are tricky. They're meant to provoke us in some way, shape, or form, and not always to comfort us. And there's a fascinating book that isn't all that easy to read sometimes, although it is hysterically funny in parts, by a, a female Jewish scholar, scripture scholar, uh, Amy Jill Levine who has a great fascination with the parables of Jesus. And she sees them as great pearls of Jewish wisdom. And she's trying to, in, in her work, she tries to kind of get back into um, as best she can, knowing what she knows about being Jewish and knowing Jewish history, sociology, politics, economics, culture, and all that way to kind of invite us to get underneath some of the Christian overlays that got put on top of maybe this first century Jew telling stories that were meant to teach without drawing conclusions, but leaving the conclusions, if ever there is a conclusion, because actually that's the thing about a parable, there's never a conclusion, to disturb us enough to make us think about them. So in some of these parables, um, there's some really fun things in them that are, I think are interesting about that uh, the typical male understanding of things loses. And it, it, if we pay attention to these parables in, in their context, something new emerges, which can be really powerful. There's also some pretty disturbing things and um, which even in the gospels are glossed over and to use the word that Amy Jill Levine uses, are domesticated to make us less uncomfortable with them. Um, and they spiritualize them. And she's making the point that that was never Jesus's intention. So I'm not going to pretend to be real good at this. They still disturb me in some ways, and um, I'm not there. But we'll take a look at, at um, a few of them. We're going to look at the, the parable of... Um, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman hides in three measures of flour. We're going to look at the parable of the lost coin, um, where the woman loses, has 10 silver coins and loses one of them and searches diligently until she finds it. And we'll look at the, the parable of the persistent widow, as it's called. It's called by lots of names. Um, that's maybe the best one. Um, although it may be a little too positive. And we'll look at the, the very disturbing, problematic parable of the 10 bridesmaids that Jesus tells about the, the, the wedding feast. And finally, although it's not specifically a parable, I take it as a parable. In Jesus pointing, um, calling attention to the widow in the temple, putting all of her 
savings, two small coins into the temple treasury, while other people watch, having put in large amounts, but didn't scratch the surface of their substance. So we'll take a look at that a little bit, see what they might have to tell us. Um, so the first one comes in Matthew chapter 13, which is the whole series of parables, starting with the parable of the sower, the weeds and the wheat, the dragnet, the mustard seed, all these kinds of stuff gets in there. And in the midst of it, Jesus tells the parable about how the kingdom of heaven is like yeast, that a woman hides in three measures of flour until it rises and grows. Okay, that's nice. The first um, shocking thing that I always missed, because I had no idea what you're talking about when you talk about three measures of flour. Um, but it's not three cups of flour, which one might use to make an ordinary loaf of bread. Three measures of flour is a whole lot of flour. <laughs> it's like enough to make 60 or 100 loaves of bread. It's a lot of flour. And flour that is not leavened is um, kind of bland as we know from consuming the body of Christ in the Eucharist, where one person says it takes more faith to believe it's bread than to believe it's the body of Christ. Um, but unleavened bread, even in the form of matzah, is not particularly tasty unless you put some good stuff on it. Um, but when you put yeast into flour, something changes to the flour. It is transformed. Amy Jill Levine says, what she's talking about a sourdough starter, which we all became very familiar with during the pandemic, as people learned to make their own bread. And an article in the Wall Street Journal told us a few months ago to say, stop making your own bread, it's not that good. Go buy it from a real baker who knows what they're doing <laughs> and taste what real bread is supposed to taste like. But it's a simple parable. A woman takes a whole lot of flour, puts in a little bit of yeast, it doesn't say that she then works it. She just says that she hides it in there and lets the yeast do its work. Now, on one level, what you're going to end up with here is an awful lot of bread, far more than you could ever use for yourself or for your family, possibly even for your entire little neighborhood. There's an abundance of bread being, being made here by a woman with a little bit of, with a whole lot of flour and a little bit of yeast. The thing about the yeast is yeast inside flour causes chemical reactions that dramatically transform flour and proceeds by unlocking in all the molecules of the flour flavors and textures and substances and all kinds of stuff that without the yeast remains locked and unavailable, unable to um, please us. I'm sure that actually I've made unleavened bread. It doesn't smell very good when it's baking, but you walk into a kitchen where they're baking real bread and it's different. It is absolutely delightful and irresistible and powerful. So the kingdom of heaven is the yeast, somehow taking a big, huge pile of bland, tasteless stuff and unlocking its richness, releasing it 
setting things free that are buried deep within in it so that it can come forth and give everything it has, working together with other molecules, coming together and forming, rising, releasing these spectacular odors and not disappointing us at all when we taste it. It's a powerful process that happens in the fermentation of yeast within bread. But the bread is transformed and if it's really good bread, there's no sign of the yeast at the end because flour by itself is pretty tasteless. Yeast is terrible. <laughs> Put the two of them together. Let them work on each other. Or specifically, let the yeast, yeast sacrifice itself to unlock all the goodness that the, the, the flour has and something extraordinarily good happens. And if you do that in three measures of wheat, you have an enormous abundance, more than you know what to do with. And so part of the mystery of the kingdom of heaven is, okay, when the kingdom of heaven goes to work in you and you are transformed and goodness that you never knew existed within yourself is unlocked and comes forth, what do you do with it? And I think that's part of Jesus's meaning in that parable is the kingdom of heaven is like yeast in each of us meant to unlock qualities, virtues, goodness, flavor, deliciousness, abundance that without the yeast we'll never find transforming life into a feast, a feast that is meant to be shared abundantly rather than a meager portion just meant to sustain us a little bit for a little while. In some ways, it's not different than the outset of the Sermon on the Mount after Jesus goes through the Beatitudes, he looks at the crowd and tells them that they are the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Great. Salt of the earth? Really? I mean, we use that as a compliment very often, and that's nice, but the salt of the earth? You know, we've just been, you know, we got through a pretty, eh, not too bad winter, but there was plenty of salt around. <laughs> and I watched the salt destroy our driveway and destroy our lawn and destroy all kinds of things as it melted the ice. Hmm. Lots of salt was left over. But salt like yeast, does its work. When its work is completed and there's no sign of the salt left, rather, what the salt does is unlock flavors so that real goodness comes forth as the salt disappears. And so the challenge in telling us we are the salt of the earth is it's not so much to call attention to yourself, you're doing your work when you are unlocking the flavors in others. When somehow or another you disappear and goodness erupts in abundance. Sacrificial love in some ways. Somehow or another this parable of the yeast, the simile of the salt is like that. And the simile of light is different. Light by itself hurts. If you look directly into light, 
and just see light. But when light shines on everything else, beauty is possible. And the different shades of light reveal different aspects of the beautiful creation around us. So yeah, creation started with let there be light, but if that was the end of it, it'd be a pretty dull world. But light shining on everything it touches reveals the complexity, the goodness, the variety of everything light touches. And so the similes of light and salt and the parable of the yeast are kind of invitations to us to um, know that our, our purpose, our discipleship, our following of Jesus, of being part, being wanting to be part of the kingdom of heaven, means a process of enlightening everything around us so that its beauty shines forth, flavoring everything we touch so that its goodness is unlocked and the yeast in the flower disappearing chemically to unlock the goodness locked in, in wheat so that its goodness shines forth. So that parable, of course, appears with all these other parables, which are, you know, they need, might be, need to be taken in context. But one point that um, a couple of authors that I read make about these, you know, the, the feminine parables, and there's not a lot about them, there's just some things there. Um, but that, you know, we don't have, you rarely, if ever, I've never seen an image of the parable of the woman burying yeast in the bread. No stained glass windows of that happening. And yet there's the sowers everywhere and, and the, um, the, the good shepherd finding the lost sheep is everywhere. And, uh, but these parables don't tend to get depicted in, in that way. And in, in some ways, maybe that's the point because the parables say it's not about the yeast. It's about what the yeast unlocks within us. And then what we do with the abundance that comes from the yeast that is unlocked within us. So that's my first shot at one of these parables. And I was like, all right. Um, but it's a lot of bread that is unlocked by a little bit of yeast. And that's what the kingdom of heaven is about. And what the, the word of God is supposed to do in us and as we proclaim it with our lives in others to not be about itself, but to unlock the goodness that's trapped and locked inside of ourselves and bring it forth. The next one is the, the parable of the lost coin. It shows up in the 15th chapter of Luke in a series of parables. And it starts off with Jesus at one of his meals with the tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and the Pharisees and the scribes are on the outside looking in, desperately wanting to be with Jesus. They want to have dinner with him. They can't because of who he is choosing to have dinner with. So in this, these series of parables do have that context of, all right, if you want to sit down at a table with Jesus, um, you don't get to pick the company. You sit down with whoever Jesus is sitting down with. 
stumbling block for the scribes and Pharisees in, in that parable as are depicted. And the first of the series of parable is the, the lost sheep. Jesus poses the question to the scribes and Pharisees, who among you, if you have a hundred sheep and loses one of them, won't leave the 99 behind and go in search of the lost one? And I kind of think, as, I, as I've thought about that parable, it's like their answer would be, well, no one. A sheep is valuable. And sheep, the, the sheep that were being raised in Israel for the most part were not for food. They were for wool, a renewable resource, so that a single sheep could produce revenue for years and years and years, then become lamb chops, not lamb chops, but mutton. <laughs> but to lose a sheep was to lose revenue, was to lose resources, a renewable resource that didn't cost anything except the cost of a shepherd to make sure the sheep didn't get lost. They just ate the grass, turned it into wool. Wool turned into textiles. Textiles turned into cash. Sheep are valuable. And I think as Jesus tells that parable, one point that he's trying to make is, you would go to the ends of the earth to protect your sources of revenue, but you're ready to discard and dispose of people all too easily, who are inconvenient or a drain on you. But then there's also the question of, um, and this is one of the jokes that Amy Jill Levine tells, is like, and she quotes a proverb from somewhere, it's like, anyone who goes, who has a hundred sheep and loses one of them, the sheep wanders away and leaves the 99 behind and goes in search of the one, comes back and has one sheep because he's lost the other 99. <laughs> there is that problem there. What happened to the other 99 as, as, he's, as he's going in pursuit of his one sheep? Um, unless, of course, he had other shepherds to take care of the other 99 and all that sort of thing. So maybe there was a way around it. But it's curious that Jesus follows that parable, a very masculine parable, about sheep and business and shepherds and revenue and resources with a woman who has 10 silver coins. So this is not a poor woman. This is a woman re with resources, a woman with means. She's got money. And she loses one of her silver coins and furiously searches her house for it. Now on the surface of things, like you got, you know, the coin is not a sheep, unless you invest it properly. It's a coin. You've got nine others. But I think one of the, the striking things about that parable, in contrast to the lost sheep parable, is that while she's searching for the one lost coin, she's clutching the other nine very tightly <laughs> and not about to lose any of them. She's not going to risk a single coin for the sake of one coin. The woman in the parable of the lost coin is only going to rejoice and celebrate when the whole collection is whole and in place. And indeed, that's what happens in the parable. She finds the lost coin. She rejoices and throws a party for her friends. And it's pointed out that the, the, the pronouns depicting her friends are all feminine pronouns, so it's a girl's night out. 
as they celebrate the, the lost coin being found. Um, and it's not just that they found the lost coin. They have restored the whole collection so that there's a wholeness and a unity. And I wonder if Jesus didn't put that parable there to make the point. Going after one, no matter how valuable it might be, and losing everybody else may not be as virtuous as it looks. But how do you keep everyone? How do you get the whole collection together, even when one goes astray? How do you keep your attention on the nine who you still have in your, in your possession and under your care and under your, your, under your roof and under your household? And maybe there's the feminine image of the parable. He points out that, and I think there's, there's, some, there's a lot of truth in this. You watch the behaviors of mothers and grandmothers. Um, they're not only happy when everybody's home. To have nine of your ten children come home for Mother's Day is not enough. You need all ten. To have one come home while the other nine are out working, doing good things, is not good. You need all ten. And he may be pointing out that there's something about uh, a feminine point of view that tends to the wholeness and completion of things that matters. And that salvation isn't one repentant sinner being found, but everybody together being found. The whole collection matters. He may be making the point that this thing we call salvation, this thing we call the kingdom of heaven, is never an individualistic exercise. It only matters when all of us are saved. And to lose any one of them along the way, or lose 199 and while one is saved, may not be good news after all. St. Augustine preached the homily, in which I have a lot of trouble <laughs> I usually have trouble with Augustine for this, it's not for another reason, where he's doing his oratorical stuff with his people and haranguing them about his concern for the salvation of their souls and calling them to live better lives. And at the end of the sermon, he, he exclaims, you know, because I do not want to be saved without you. I look at my students and say, I'll take salvation without them. <laughs> I look at my congregations on Sundays like, yeah, I'll take, you know, the people on here, I'll find without them. Like, but the parables, especially these feminine parables, suggest to have any piece missing or to risk losing any one of them, even if, you know, or to risk losing a lot for the sake of one is never acceptable. It only works when the whole set is complete. Just like a mother is only content when all of her children are home. And of course, Jesus follows that parable with the famous and long parable of the lost sons and the father and the two sons. And I find it in the context of this talk, it's very striking that there's no mother. There's no sister. And I wonder, 
if maybe that was a, one of the points Jesus may be making, you leave out the mothers, things get messy. She's absent from that parable. And the parable's sad, even though there's a big feast in the middle of it. It's a sad parable. Broken hearts everywhere. Broken bodies, broken spirits all around us. And the one, the, the second son, the one who takes the inheritance and goes off and squanders it on dissolute living, um, is not the most sympathetic of characters, even as he comes home because he's hungry. And the father's, yeah, nice. He welcomes his son. He, he's been waiting for that son, looking for that lost son, waiting for him to come home. And the sadness of the parable is that as he's waiting for his lost son to come home, he loses his other son. Raising the question of if there was a mother in the picture, would she have allowed that to happen? Father doesn't even see his older son. So focused on the one who's lost. So focused on waiting for this one son to come home, supposedly to make his family whole, but while focusing on the one, he loses the other. And it may well be, you know, the, the end of the story is he's pleading with his older son to come into the party, join the family, everything I have is, is yours. There's a little weakness in those words because it sounds like a few years of neglect are not being made up for in those words. So there may be a lesson in that very masculine parable about somehow or another, without the feminine to see, to count, to be able to count everyone and to see everyone and to desire everyone and to value everyone, lost or found, matters. There's a big challenge there in that parable for that. The parable of the persistent widow is a real problem. Luke talks to make, turns it into a parable about praying always. And there's nothing in this parable that suggests it's about praying always. He's fluffing it up because it, I think it's, it's a very disturbing parable. And, and I had resolved some of the disturbing parts of it for myself, um, which I was happy to find out that Sister Barbara Reed agreed with me on. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, it starts with, you know, in a certain town, there was a judge and a widow who was demanding not justice, but vengeance. She wanted satisfaction for some perceived or real harm that has been done to her by another person. And the judge doesn't want to hear it, not interested. And she just keeps persisting and persisting to the point of threatening the judge with physical violence. Now, we're not sure how real that threat might have been or how much harm she might have been able to do to the judge, but there's that threat of persistent violence 
which seems to finally sway the judge to just give up and give in to her. But it isn't clear whether giving in to her is what justice demands. It's what her persistence and threats call for. So I've always had the big problem with that parable in that it, it's too facile on the surface to see the unjust judge who needs to be persuaded to give us what we want. And prayer is the way to do that as this image of God that we have to keep pestering and pestering, maybe even threatening in order to get what we want. And that's not a very good lesson about what prayer is. And yet Luke makes it about, about, about prayer. Um, so I resolved that a while ago, which was satisfying me until I dove into this more deeply, that the judge is not the figure of God. The widow is. The judge is us, the unjust world. And God is going to just pester us, keep pestering like a gnat. Wouldn't that be an interesting image of God? It's like a, a fly that won't leave us alone until we pay attention. Crying out for justice. Do justice, do justice without forcing us, except there's that threat in there in the end, which gets to be disturbing. So as Amy Jill Levine takes this on, talks about misconceptions of widows and misconceptions of judges and misconceptions of justice systems, she presents the possibility that by putting this figure of a persistent widow was even more disturbing than if it had been a male landowner demanding justice from an unjust judge. Because her behavior leaves us unsettled. She gets what she wants, but we don't know whether what she got was real justice or not. She gets what she's demanding by persistence and threats. We still don't know whether that's the way it goes, but she's doing, and she's trying to get satisfaction through the courts of law and is using all of the tricks and power that she can within the courts of law, even outside the courts of law, in order to get her own way. Which is not what Jesus taught. If someone sues you and you're on the way to court, Settle with them quickly. Otherwise, you may lose even more than you already have. If someone sues you for your coat, give them your shirt as well. It's, it's like almost a contradiction to the Sermon on the Mount. And even in Luke's Sermon on the Mount, those two, those two teachings apply. It's possible that Jesus told that parable to his public, his listeners, as an example of, it doesn't matter whether you're male or female. When you take justice into your own hands and you seek it with self-interest, without regard for the impact that it's going to have on the person you're seeking justice from or the fabric of the whole community, this may not be a good thing. 
So he may raise up this persistent widow, not as a hero, but as someone to mirror all of us, as a mirror for all of us to look on and say, you know, especially if the parable leaves us unsettled, something feels wrong about this. And he may be the parable may be suggesting that, yes, if you're thinking something feels wrong about this, you're right. Maybe no one would give it a second thought if it was a male. But if this is a female acting in very male ways with threats of violence and shows of strength and power and trying to manipulate the courts of law to her own interests, it becomes even more chilling and stark. And so the impact of the parable in out of Jesus's mouth is like, yeah, see yourself in a mirror. Don't do that. Don't worry about the unjust judges of the world. If you have recourse to the unjust judges of the world, you deserve what you get. Find another way where there aren't winners and losers. Find another way, you may be suggesting. Eh, it's a little chilling. Find another way. And I think that, that applies in, in our experience, in our lives, men, women, any conflicts that we have, um, the desire to seek winners and losers, and find satisfaction in that, is not the kingdom of heaven. Um, perhaps he uses the image of a female widow as, as a, you know, like, women are supposed to be better at this than men. But even women, when they do this, they're not going to get. They may get what they want. They will not bring about justice. They will not bring about reconciliation. They will not bring about wholeness. They may win, but as long as there's a loser, nobody's won. And then there's that parable of, which I mean, I always, I, I'm like, what do you do with this parable of the ten bridesmaids? Because of course, showing wedding, who, I don't know if anyone ever had those wedding, those wedding customs that we hear about in the parables. Who knows? Um, the real villain of the parable is the bridegroom who doesn't show up on time <laughs> and is very, very delayed, which you know, could have been Jesus's way of preparing the church for the fact that it's going to be a while before I come back. And in the meantime, there's more for you to do than just wait for me. So it comes to the, stay awake. You know, not the day nor the hour. You know, the, the king, the, the, you know, the, the son of man could return at any moment. Yes, all that's in there. But he has this parable where these bridesmaids are only focused on waiting for the bridegroom. And in the process of it, they all fall asleep. All of them fall asleep. So none of them have been able to stay awake. But then they hear that the bridegroom is coming and five of them have enough oil and the other five don't. And maybe here's the hard lesson of the parable. As he tells the parable, those who don't have enough oil ask to borrow some from those who do and are refused and are therefore barred from the feast. 
So there is not going to be wholeness at this feast. Five bridesmaids are not allowed in. And the five who are allowed in maybe had a great time. Maybe not. But I think the point of that parable is, again, using bridesmaids, whatever it is, may not matter. But he says, all right, the bridegroom may be delayed. The point isn't to just keep your eyes waiting for the, the bridegroom to come while ignoring the needs of each other. What a better feast it will be is if when the bridegroom appears, those who have plenty are more than willing to share it with those who don't so that everybody can come into the wedding feast. Jesus' wedding feast parables are disturbing. They never end well. They always end up with somebody being thrown out or somebody not showing up or somebody destroying cities. It's never a good thing. And somehow all of those parables are not meant to tell us that as long as you make it into the banquet, you're good. I think his parables are to tell us if everybody doesn't make it into the banquet, the banquet's not a banquet. If everyone doesn't come. And so your responsibility isn't just to make sure that you get your ticket in, but that everybody gets their ticket in. And there's Augustine shelling at his people, I do not want to be saved without you. I'm like, hmm, good for you. And yet Jesus may be, may be inviting us by these difficult parables to ask ourselves, are we willing to be saved? And who are we willing to sacrifice in the, in the course of being saved ourselves? Are we willing to make sure that the needs of everyone are met so that everyone is welcome in the banquet? and not exclude for any reasons whatsoever, but to figure out how do we make sure everyone has a seat at the table when the bridegroom comes. And then we can all look at him and says, what was wrong with you? Where were you? In the meantime, he looks at us and says, you weren't ready because you hadn't taken care of each other that way. And the final little story, um, the story of the widow's might. She's going to come off pretty well. She's you know, okay. She's good. She's terribly devout, faithful, willing to put her entire life into her faith, into her devotion, into her trust in the God that she believes is her salvation. She's willing to give everything she has for the sake of what she believes in. And Jesus praises her. But in praising her, he's condemning the others around her. Who have given generously, but haven't given everything. But I don't know that he's really telling them, you should all put everything you have into the temple treasury so the temple can be rich and you can all be poor. Don't think that's the point at all. I think he's looking at those people, probably all males, in their fine robes and their generous contributions and saying, you see this widow here? She's given everything she has. 
Shame on you. Not to her, but on them. Why are you not taking care of her? Why are your, your contributions not going to make sure that she is taken care of? Why are you allowing her to keep on giving while it costs you nothing to give, to be part of this? Several years ago, uh, this reading shows up in the lectionary, um, it, usually in early November, when it shows up in Luke's Gospel. And that particular week, it was the Sunday before Veterans Day. And I've had a soft spot for veterans um, since I was a psychology intern at the end of my psychology studies and I was an intern at a VA hospital, which was um, probably the most difficult experiences I've had in my life, but one in which I learned more than most of my experiences. Because I have been raised and used to live in the passive aggressive niceness of the church where everyone's nice, but not really. In the VA, which is a military culture, everybody's hostile, everybody's aggressive, everybody's mean, but everybody's honest. It's a very different place. And as I spent that year listening to the stories of vets, pretty horrible stories and, and written lots of horrible things. And so while I have a great soft spot for vets, I have a greater distaste for what we do to them and what we ask of them and how somehow or another we keep on asking some people to give everything like the widow does and give them nothing in return and do not change ourselves as a result of their sacrifices. How do we live lives that honor the sacrifices of those we have asked to give everything? Well, so far we've done it by asking more people to give everything and give them nothing in return. So in the homily, I, I talked about veterans and the statistics, the horrifying statistics of the high, very high suicide rate among them, the even higher rates of mental illness and homelessness and all kinds of difficulties adjusting and the meagerness with which we take care of them, even though it looks terribly generous. It's meager to, to meet their needs. But mostly we just keep asking more and more people to give everything, while as a result of their sacrifices, nothing changes. But we just keep asking for everything. And then I gave a couple other examples of people from whom we ask everything and give nothing in return. Examples like, um, the people in China who fingers thin enough to put iPhones together and risk their lives as a result so that we can have our iPhones. And then I use the example of um, illegal immigrants who come into our country who get in and are willing to do jobs that no one else is willing to do and we're more than willing to have them do that until we don't and we send them home, giving them nothing. Kinds of examples in which um, People are asked and respond by giving everything they have. And in return, get absolutely nothing. Well, when I started talking about the illegal immigrants, one person in the congregation got up and walked out. Wrote me a very nasty letter. How dare you? How dare you compare people who have broken the law? Like, whose law? Why can't you just preach homilies like our former priest did, who just always condemned abortion? 
why do you have to go into this other stuff? I'm like, well, sorry, sir. You're not going to get what you want from me. So <laughs> take it or leave it. Uh, but there was that, that, that sense of somehow or another, you know, there are people from whom we can ask everything and owe nothing in return. And I think the, the message of the, of the story of the widow's might is that is never okay. Never okay. I think so in this, these feminine images of the parables, there's some, there's beautiful images of the, of the, the, the loaf becoming its fullness as a result of the yeast being put into it and the coin being found so that the whole set is complete. And that kind of theme continues in the others. The whole set being complete is what matters. The kingdom of heaven is when everything is energized and everyone's gifts are unlocked and appreciated and valued and cherished. And that one silver coin, well, the nine coins that aren't lost matter too, because the only thing that matters is the whole set, the completion of everything. And so systems in which we pursue victories for ourselves at the expense of other people losing are never okay. And situations in which we receive people who are willing to give everything they have, whether we ask for it or not, and give them nothing in return is not okay. The kingdom of heaven happens when the whole is complete, when everyone sits down at the wedding feast, not just the ones who have enough oil to greet the bridegroom, when everyone finds a place at the table, not just the lost son who managed to find his way home because he was hungry, but the lost son who got lost in his brother's lostness. The feminine image of the parables, or at least they're saying to me that what matters that the kingdom of heaven is like anything that makes the whole complete. And anything that falls short of the whole being complete is not what the kingdom of heaven is like.